You are listening to Wide Atlantic Weird, the podcast that explores fringe theories, cryptozoology, conspiracy theories, and weird fiction in an effort to answer the question, why do people insist on believing strange things? I'm your host, Kean, and tonight, as the English spring has let us down yet again, and as the cold wind howls across the desolation of deepest, darkest Essex, and by desolation, I'm not talking about Romford, I'm hunkered down in the library of the wide Atlantic weird bunker. For a survivalist bug-out spot, it's got a surprisingly well-stocked library. There's wood-panelled walls, low lighting, piles of leather-clad books, and of course, a cabinet of hand-picked whiskies. It's the ideal spot in which to read a classic tale of pleasing terror from years gone by. I'm calling this episode Cryptids in Classic Fiction, and tonight's tale is The Horror Horn, by E.F. Benson. So why don't you pour yourself a glass of something nice, settle into a comfy armchair, and enjoy this pleasant tale of murderous, people-stealing ape monsters living in the Swiss Alps. You're listening to White Atlantic Weird. Hi, welcome to the show. Kian here. Uh, now, I've been working on an episode about the history of the concept of Bigfoot. So, like the history of the myth Bigfoot as an idea, where it came from. And if you've heard the show before, you'll know that I'm particularly interested in tracing the origin of these kind of legends. I'm particular, particularly interested in how they came about first. For example, in the case of Bigfoot, I'm working from this idea that Bigfoot became kind of knocked into shape, as it were, like the legend was kicked into its uh, present form in the year 1958. That's when the idea really took off in America. And that afterwards, um, people who started to study Bigfoot would look back at older reports and kind of pick and choose the ones that seemed to fit with their new idea of what Bigfoot should be. So the idea that they would maybe leave out um, stories and legends that didn't fit with their new idea and emphasise the ones that did. Inevitably, I've come across some early ideas about the the Central Asian version of Bigfoot, the, the Yeti or the Abominable Snowman, as it was called first. And with that in mind, I've chosen tonight's story, The Horror Horn by E.F. Benson, as it, it's from 1922. And this was a time when the ideas about the Abominable Snowman were very much um, in demand. These were great new ideas that were very interesting to people, largely because Europeans were just starting to uh, get into the exploration of the Himalayan mountains. It was maybe the tail end of the, the golden age of mountaineering. Now, one thing that Benson does in this story is he th- he takes then-current ideas about the, the abominable snowman and transfers it into the Italian, or rather the Swiss Alps, I should say, it being an area that he himself was familiar with. So that's really interesting to me. One thing I wanted to find out was, well, what shape was the myth of the abominable snowman uh, in at that time? And this idea was so pervasive, and, and because really it predates Bigfoot, you'll find that in early American um, examples of the Bigfoot legend, they call it the abominable snowman. That's the name that they give it. The abominable snowman of America um, was one of the earliest books about it. Now, I went down a rabbit hole researching this, looking for some early sightings that Benson might have had access to, but 
I, I got slightly misallayed and I went down some wrong directions because I had the date for the story wrong. In fact, the story being from 1922, one of the only early European sightings that I think he would have had access to would have been the 1921 sighting of Colonel Charles Howard Bury. Now, Bury was on Everest in 1921 at a place called Lakpa Pass and he came across footprints and when he asked his his native helpers uh, what this uh, what the footprints might have been because he was confused by them he says that they looked like a barefoot human they gave him a local term which he then famously mis um, translated as being the abominable snowman and that's actually where this term for us comes from now he wrote a book called Mount Everest the reconnaissance in 1921 and I'm going to read a quote from it now. And some of the, so this quote and the information I've taken from a site called anomalyinfo.com, which I really re- uh, recommend. It's a very, very good site for tracing the history of these uh, paranormal ideas. So in his book, Colonel Charles Howard Bury writes, We were able to pick out tracks of hares and foxes, but one that at first looked like a human foot puzzled us considerably. Our coolies at once jumped to the conclusion that this must be the wild man of the snows, to which they gave the name of Mito Kangmi, the abominable snowman, who interested the newspapers so much. On my return to civilized countries, I read with interest delightful accounts of the ways and customs of this wild man whom we were supposed to have met. Now, the reason uh, the colonel says this is because between the time when he first wrote his notes and... Uh, in 1921 which he sent around to friends and which made the rounds in the newspapers and by the time he got back and wrote his book in 1922 the story had really grown legs and newspaper writers in those days were not shy of adding to the story they were already starting to write that not only had he seen footprints but that his coolies as they were called had also seen the creatures themselves and were reporting that they were kind of hanging around in the mountains close to them, waiting for a chance, in fact, to attack the party. So by the time he got back, uh, the story had really taken off, and you can see his kind of dismissive tone um, when he writes that quote in the book. In fact, he himself always maintained he believed that the prints were probably made by some kind of wolf, and the fact that they looked a bit like naked human feet was just a bit of a coincidence. So that's part of where that story comes from. Now, before uh, I'll get into the story tonight, I'll mention that I am drinking a can of Asahi Super Dry. It's a Japanese beer. It's a lager. It's quite nice. It is indeed quite dry. Uh, Before we get started, I I also want to say that the background to this story is more than just this article I'm putting together, this podcast I'm putting together about Bigfoot. Um, I've also just come back from Germany where I was doing a little bit of research into the the concept of the Überwald, which is, of course, the sort of semi-legendary mythical version of Central Europe that shows up in a lot of Gothic fiction and stuff like that. If you want to hear more about that, check out my older podcast, Strange Ireland, in particular the episode on on the Irish writer Sheridan Le Fanu, who helped helped to create this this literary trope. Um, Incidentally, on my way back today, I was coming back down into the UK on the airplane, I looked out the window and I saw three crop circles. Now, my very first actual crop circles I've ever seen. They looked to be about 100 metres across each, maybe based on the houses that were nearby and doing some quick quick and dirty mass, sticking my head out the window. Um, 
they all had the same sim symbol. It was like two circles, one within the other, and then two lines going from the small circle in the middle up to the top, almost like the if you were to draw uh, the circles in the middle of a compass. That's what it reminded me of. So whether they were put there by man or by grey aliens, I mean, who knows? I, I think I know, but I'm not going to say. And they were in a field of brassica, rapeseed oil. So there you go, my first ever ones, whether they were put there <laughs> by hoaxers or not. Certainly uh, the south of England is the place to see them, being the Wiltshire, being the spiritual home, of course, of the crop circle phenomena worldwide. Uh, but, um, so E.F. Benson's story, The Horror Horn, is all about the, the uh, creatures that resemble, of course, the abominable snowman, uh, but he has m misplaced them. He's taken them out of Central Asia and he's put them into the Swiss Alps, being an area that he was personally familiar with. So this story came into my head, again, having just spent a bit of time uh, in Central Europe and th thinking about those sort of mythological ideas and thinking about the various myths and legend associated with um, the Alps. So that's another reason why I decided to dust off this particular uh, classic tale. Not only does it have aspects of um, the sort of Bigfoot or, or Yeti type creatures, but it also has um, elements of Central European mythology going on. And we'll talk a little bit about um, how authentic or inauthentic that might have been um, at the end of the story. So for now, grab yourself something nice to drink, settle down and take a listen to The Horror Horn by E. F. Benson. For the past ten days, Alubil had basked in the radiant midwinter weather proper to its eminence of over 6,000 feet. From rising to setting, the sun, so surprising to those who have hitherto associated it with a pale, tepid plate indistinctly shining through the murky air of England, had blazed its way across the sparkling blue, and every night the serene and windless frost had made the stars sparkle like illuminated diamond dust. Sufficient snow had fallen before Christmas to content the skiers, and the big rink, sprinkled every evening, had given the skaters each morning a fresh surface on which to perform their slippery antics. Bridge and dancing served to while away the greater part of the night, and to me, now for the first time tasting the joys of a winter in the Engadine, it seemed that a new heaven and a new earth had been lighted, warmed and refrigerated for the special benefit of those who, like myself, had been wise enough to save up their days of holiday for the winter. But a break came in these ideal conditions. One afternoon the sun grew vapour-veiled, and up the valley from the northwest, a wind frozen with miles of travel over ice-bound hillsides, began scouting through the calm halls of the heavens. Soon it grew dusted with snow, first in small flakes, driven almost horizontally before its congealing breath, and then in larger tufts as of swans down. And though all day for a fortnight before the fate of nations and life and death had seemed to me of far less importance than to get certain tracings of the skate blades on the ice of proper shape and size, it now seemed that the one paramount consideration was to hurry back to the hotel for shelter. It was wiser to leave rocking turns alone than to be frozen in their quest. 
I had come out here with my cousin, Professor Ingram, the celebrated physiologist and alpine climber. During the serenity of the last fortnight, he'd made a couple of notable winter ascents, but this morning his weather wisdom had mistrusted the signs of the heavens, and instead of attempting the ascent of the Pizpazug, he had waited to see whether his misgivings justified themselves. So there he sat now in the hall of the admirable hotel, with his feet on the hot water pipes and the latest delivery of the English post in his hands. This contained a pamphlet concerning the result of the Mount Everest expedition, of which he had just finished the perusal when I entered. A very interesting report, he said, passing it to me, and they certainly deserve to succeed next year. But who can tell what that final 6,000 feet may entail? 6,000 feet more when you have already accomplished 23,000 does not seem much, but at present no one knows whether the human frame can stand exertion at such a height. It may affect not the lungs and heart only, but possibly the brain. Delirious hallucinations may occur. In fact, if I did not know better, I should have said that one such hallucination had occurred to the climbers already. And what was that? I asked. You will find that they thought they came across the tracks of some naked human foot at a great altitude. That looks at first sight like a hallucination. What more natural than that a brain excited and exhilarated by the extreme height should have interpreted certain marks in the snow as the footprints of a human being? Every bodily organ at these altitudes is exerting itself to the utmost to do its work. And the brain seizes on those marks in the snow and says, Yes, I'm all right, I'm doing my job, and I perceive marks in the snow which I affirm are human footprints. You know, even at this altitude, how restless and eager the brain is, how vividly, as you told me, you dream at night. Multiply that stimulus and that consequent eagerness and restlessness by three, and how natural that the brain should harbour illusions. What, after all is the delirium which often accompanies high fever, but the effort of the brain to do its work under the pressure of feverish conditions. It is so eager to continue perceiving that it perceives things which have no existence. And yet you don't think that these naked human footprints were illusions, said I. You told me you would have thought so if you had not known better. He shifted in his chair and looked out the window for a moment. The air was thick now with the density of the big snowflakes that were driven along by the squealing northwest gale. Quite so, he said. In all probability, the human footprints were real human footprints. I expect that they were the footprints, anyhow, of a being more nearly a man than anything else. My reason for saying so is that I know such beings exist. I have even seen quite near at hand, and I assure you, I did not wish to be nearer, in spite of my intense curiosity, the creature, shall we say, which would make such footprints. And if the snow was not so dense, I could show you the place where I saw him. He pointed straight out of the window, where across the valley lies the huge tower of the Ungahuerhorn, with the carved pinnacle of rock at the top like some gigantic rhinoceros horn. On one side only, as I knew, was the mountain practicable, and that for none but the finest climbers. On the other three, a succession of ledges and precipices rendered it unscalable. Two thousand feet of sheer rock formed the tower. Below are five hundred feet of fallen boulders, up to the edge of which grow dense woods of larch and pine. 
Upon the Unguerhorn, I asked. Yes, up till twenty years ago it had never been ascended, and I, like several others, spent a lot of time in trying to find a route up it. My guide and I sometimes spent three nights together at the hut beside the Bloomin' Glacier, prowling round it, and it was by luck really that we found the route, for the mountain looks even more impracticable from the far side than it does from this. But one day we found a long, traversable fissure in the side, which led to a negotiable ledge. Then there came a slanting ice couloir, which you could not see till you got to the foot of it. However, I need not go into that. The big room where we sat was filling up with cheerful groups, driven indoors by this sudden gale and snowfall, and the cackle of merry tongues grew loud. The band, too, that invariable appanage of tea-time tea at Swiss resorts, had begun to tune up for the usual potpourri from the works of Puccini. Next moment the sugary, sentimental melodies began. Strange contrast, said Ingram. Here are we, sitting warm and cosy, our ears pleasantly tickled with these little baby tunes, and outside is the great storm growing more violent every moment, and swirling round the austere cliffs of the Jungwehrhorn, the horror horn, as indeed it was for me. I want to hear all about it, I said. Every detail. Make a short story long, if it's short. I want to know why it's your horror horn. Well, Shanton and I, he was my guide, used to spend days prowling around the cliffs, making a little progress on one side, and then being stopped, and gaining perhaps 500 feet on another side, and then being confronted by some insuperable obstacle, till the day when, by luck, we found the route. Shantan never liked the job for some reason that I could not fathom. It was not because of the difficulty or danger of the climbing, for he was the most fearless man I had ever met when dealing with rocks and ice, but he was always insistent that we should get off the mountain and back to the Bloomin' Hut before sunset. He was scarcely easy even when we had got back to shelter and locked and barred the door, and I well remember one night when, as we ate our supper, we heard some animal, a wolf probably, howling somewhere out in the night. A positive panic seized him, and I don't think he closed his eyes till morning. It struck me then that there might be some grisly legend about the mountain, connected possibly with its name. And next day, I asked him why the peak was called the Horror Horn. He put the question off at first, and said that, like the Shrek Horn, its name was due to its precipices and falling stones. But when I pressed him further, he acknowledged that there was a legend about it, which his father had told him. There were creatures, so it was supposed, that lived in its caves, things human in shape and covered, except for the face and hands, with long black hair. They were dwarfs in size, four feet high or thereabouts, but of prodigious strength and agility, remnants of some wild primeval race. It seemed that they were still in an upward stage of evolution, or so I guessed, for the story ran that sometimes girls had been carried off by them, not as prey, and not any such fate as those captured by cannibals, but to be bred from. Young men also had been raped by them, to be mated with the females of their tribe. All this looked as if the creatures, as I said, were tending towards humanity. But naturally, I did not believe a word of it, as applied to the conditions of the present day. Centuries ago, conceivably, there may have been such beings, and, with the extraordinary tenacity of tradition, the news of this had been handed down and was still current round the hearths of the peasants. 
As for their numbers, Shantan told me that three had been seen once together by a man who, owing to his swiftness on skis, had escaped to tell the tale. This man, he averred, was no other than his grandfather, who had been benighted one winter evening as he passed through the dense woods below the Unguerhorn. And Shantan supposed that they had been driven down to these lower altitudes in search of food during severe winter weather, for otherwise the recorded sights of them had always taken place among the rocks of the peak itself. They had pursued his grandfather, then a young man, at an extraordinarily swift canter, running sometimes upright as men run, sometimes on all fours in the manner of beasts, and their howls were just such as we had heard that night in the Bloomin' Hut. Such, at any rate, was the story Shantan told me, and like you, I regarded it as the very moonshine of superstition. But the very next day, I had reason to reconsider my judgment about it. It was on that day that after a week of exploration, we hit on the only route at present known to the top of our peak. We started as soon as there was light enough to climb by, for, as you may guess, on very difficult rocks, it is impossible to climb by lantern or moonlight. We hit on the long fissure I have spoken of. We explored the ledge, which from below seemed to end in nothingness, and with an hour's step-cutting ascended the cool war which led upwards from it. From there onwards it was a rock-climb, certainly of considerable difficulty, but with no heartbreaking discoveries ahead, and it was about nine in the morning that we stood on the top. We did not wait there long, for that side of the mountain is raked by falling stones loosened, when the sun grows hot from the ice that moulds them, and we made haste to pass the ledge where the falls are most frequent. After that there was the long fissure to descend, a matter of no great difficulty, and we were at the end of our work by midday, both of us, as you may imagine, in the state of the highest elation. A long and tiresome scramble among the huge boulders at the foot of the cliff then lay before us. Here the hillside is very porous, and great caves extend far into the mountain. We had unroped at the base of the fissure, and were picking our way, as seemed good to either of us, among these fallen rocks, many of them bigger than an ordinary house, when, on coming round the corner of one of these, I saw that which made it clear that the stories Shantan had told me were no figment of traditional superstition. Not twenty yards in front of me lay one of the beings of which he had spoken. There it sprawled, naked and basking on its back, with face turned up to the sun, which its narrow eyes regarded unwinking. In form it was completely human, but the growth of hair that covered limbs and trunk alike almost completely hid the sun-tanned skin beneath. But its face, save for the down on its cheeks and chin, was hairless, and I looked on a countenance, the sensual and malevolent bestiality of which froze me with horror. Had the creature been an animal, one would have felt scarcely a shudder at the gross animalism of it. The horror lay in the fact that it was a man. There lay by it a couple of gnawed bones, and, its meal finished, it was lazily licking its protuberant lips, from which came a purring murmur of content. With one hand it scratched the thick hair on its belly, in the other it held one of these bones, which presently split in half beneath the pressure of its finger and thumb. But my horror was not based on the information of what happened to those men whom these creatures caught. It was due only to my proximity to a thing so human and so infernal. The peak of which the ascent had a moment ago filled us with such elated satisfaction, 
they came to me an Anguerhorn indeed, for it was the home of beings more awful than the delirium of nightmare could ever have conceived. Chantan was a dozen paces behind me, and with a backward wave of my hand I caused him to halt, then withdrawing myself with infinite precaution so as not to attract the gaze of that basking creature, I slipped back round the rock, whispered to him what I had seen, and with blanched faces we made a long detour, peering round every corner and crouching low, not knowing that at any step we might not come upon another of these beings, or that from the mouth of one of these caves in the mountainside there might not appear another of those hairless and dreadful faces, with perhaps this time the breasts and insignia of womanhood. That would have been the worst of all. Luck favoured us, for we made our way among the boulders and shifting stones, the rattle of which might at any moment have betrayed us, without a repetition of my experience. And once among the trees, we ran as if the Furies themselves were in pursuit. Well, now did I understand, though I dare say I cannot convey, the qualms of Shantan's mind when he spoke to me of these creatures. Their very humanity was what made them so terrible, the fact that they were of the same race as ourselves, but of a type so abysmally degraded that the most brutal and inhuman of men must have seemed angelic in comparison. The music of the small band was over before he had finished the narrative, and the chattering groups round the tea table had dispersed. He paused a moment. There was a horror of the spirit, he said, which I experienced then, from which, I verily believe, I have never entirely recovered. I saw then how terrible a living thing could be, and how terrible, in consequence, was life itself. In us all, I suppose, lurks some inherited germ of that ineffable bestiality, and who knows whether, sterile as it has apparently become in the course of centuries, it might not fructify again. When I saw that creature's sun itself, I looked into the abyss out of which we have crawled, and these creatures are trying to crawl out of it now, if they exist any longer. Certainly for the last twenty years there has been no record of their being seen, until we come to this story of the footprint seen by the climbers on Everest. If that is authentic, if the party did not mistake the footprint of some bear or what not for a human tread, it seems as if still this bestranded remnant of mankind is in existence. Now Ingram had told his story well, but sitting in this warm and civilised room, the horror which he had clearly felt had not communicated itself to me in any very vivid manner. Intellectually, I agreed. I could appreciate his horror, but certainly my spirit felt no shudder of interior comprehension. But it is odd, I said, that your keen interest in physiology did not disperse your qualms. You were looking, so I take it, at some form of man more remote probably than the earliest human remains. Did not something inside you say... This is of absorbing significance. He shook his head. No, I only wanted to get away, said he. It was not, as I have told you, the terror of what, according to Shantan's story, might await us if we were captured. It was sheer horror at the creature itself. I quaked at it. The snowstorm and the gale increased in violence that night, and I slept uneasily, plucked again and again from slumber by the fierce battling of the wind that shook my windows as if with an imperious demand for admittance. It came in billowy gusts, with strange noises intermingled with it, as for a moment it abated, with flutings and moanings that rose to shrieks as the fury of it returned. 
These noises, no doubt, mingled themselves with my drowsed and sleepy consciousness, and once I tore myself out of nightmare, imagining that the creatures of the horror horn had gained footing on my balcony and were rattling at the window bolts. But before morning, the gale had died away, and I awoke to see the snow falling, dense and fast in windless air. For three days it continued, without intermission, and with its cessation there came a frost such as I have never felt before. Fifty degrees were registered one night, and more the next, and what the cold must have been on the cliffs of the young born, I cannot imagine. Sufficient, so I thought, to have made an end altogether of its secret inhabitants. My cousin, on that day twenty years ago, had missed an opportunity for study which would probably never fall again, either to him or another. I received one morning a letter from a friend saying that he had arrived at the neighbouring winter resort of St. Luigi, and proposing that I should come over for a morning skating and lunch afterwards. The place was not more than a couple of miles off if one took the path over the low, pine-clad foothills above which lay the steep woods below the first rocky slopes of the Unguerhorn, and accordingly, with a knapsack containing skates on my back, I went on skis over the wooded slopes and down by an easy descent again onto St. Luigi. The day was overcast, clouds entirely obscured the higher peaks, though the sun was visible, pale and unluminous through the mists. But as the morning went on, it gained the upper hand and I slid down into St. Luigi beneath a sparkling firmament. We skated and lunched, and then, since it looked as if thick weather was coming up again, I set out early about three o'clock for my return journey. Hardly had I got into the woods when the clouds gathered thick above and streamers and skeins of them began to descend among the pines through which my path threaded its way. In ten minutes more, their rapacity had so increased that I could hardly see a couple of yards in front of me. Very soon I became aware that I must have got off the path, for snow-cowled shrubs lay directly in my way, and, casting back to find it again, I got altogether confused as to direction. But though progress was difficult, I knew I had only to keep on the ascent, and presently I should come to the brow of these low foothills, and descend into the open valley where Alubel stood. So on I went, stumbling and sliding over obstacles, and unable, owing to the thickness of the snow, to take off my skis, for I should have sunk over the knees at each step. Still the ascent continued, and looking at my watch I saw that I had already been nearer an hour on my way from St. Luigi, a period more than sufficient to complete my whole journey. But still, I stuck to the idea that though I had certainly strayed far from my proper route, a few minutes more must surely see me over the top of the upward way, and I should find the ground declining into the next valley. And now, too, I noticed that the mists were growing suffused with rose colour, and though the inference was that it must be close on sunset, there was consolation in the fact that they were there and might lift at any moment and disclose to me my whereabouts. But the fact that night would soon be on me made it needful to bar my mind against that despair of loneliness which so eats out the heart of a man who is lost in woods or on mountainside, that, though still there is plenty of vigour in his limbs, his nervous force is sapped, and he can do no more than lie down and abandon himself to whatever fate may await him. And then I heard that which made the thought of loneliness seem bliss indeed, for there was a fate worse than loneliness. What I heard resembled the howl of a wolf, 
and it came from not far in front of me where the ridge, was it a ridge, still rose higher in vestments of pines. From behind me came a sudden puff of wind, which shook the frozen snow from the drooping pine branches and swept away the mists as a broom sweeps the dust from the floor. Radiant above me were the unclouded skies, already charged with the red of the sunset, and in front I saw that which I had come to the very edge of the wood through which I had wandered so long. But it was no valley into which I had penetrated, for there, right ahead of me, rose the steep slope of boulders and rocks soaring upwards to the foot of the Unguerhorn. What then was that cry of a wolf which had made my heart stand still? I saw... Not twenty yards from me was a fallen tree, and leaning against the trunk of it was one of the denizens of the horror horn, and it was a woman. She was enveloped in a thick growth of grey hair and tufted, and from her head it streamed down over her shoulders and her bosom, from which hung withered and pendulous breasts. And looking on her face, I comprehended not with my mind alone, but with a shudder of my spirit, what Ingram had felt. Never had nightmare fashioned so terrible a countenance. The beauty of sun and stars and of the beasts of the field and the kindly race of men could not atone for so hellish an incarnation of the spirit of life. A fathomless bestiality modelled the slavering mouth and the narrow eyes. I looked into the abyss itself and knew that out of that abyss, on the edge of which I leaned, the generations of men had climbed. What if that ledge crumbled in front of me and pitched me headlong into its nethermost depths? In one hand she held by the horns a chamois that kicked and struggled. A blow from its hind leg caught her withered thigh, and with a grunt of anger she seized the leg in her other hand, and as a man may pull from its sheath a stem of meadow grass, she plucked it off the body, leaving the torn skin hanging round the gaping wound. Then, putting the red bleeding member through her mouth, she sucked at it as a child sucks a stick of sweetmeat. Through flesh and gristle, her short brown teeth penetrated, and she licked her lips with a sound of purring. Then, dropping the leg by her side, she looked again at the body of the prey now quivering in its death convulsion, and with finger and thumb gouged out one of its eyes. She snapped her teeth on it, and it cracked like a soft-shelled nut. It must have been but a few seconds that I stood watching her, in some indescribable catalepsy of terror, while through my brain there pealed the panic command of my mind to my stricken limbs, Be gone, be gone while there is time! Then, recovering the power of my joints and muscles, I tried to slip behind a tree and hide myself from this apparition. But the woman, shall I say, must have caught my stir of movement, for she raised her eyes from her living feast and saw me. She craned forward her neck, she dropped her prey, and half rising began to move towards me. As she did this, she opened her mouth and gave forth a howl such as I had heard a moment before. It was answered by another, but faintly and distantly. Sliding and slipping, with the toes of my skis tripping in the obstacles below the snow, I plunged forward down the hill between the pine trunks. The low sun already sinking behind some rampart of mountain in the west reddened the snow and the pines with its ultimate rays. My knapsack with the skates in it swung to and fro on my back, one ski-stick had already been twitched out of my hand by a fallen branch of pine, but not a second's pause could I allow myself to recover it. I gave no glance behind, and I knew not at what pace my pursuer was on my track, or indeed 
whether any pursued at all, for my whole mind and energy, now working at full power again under the stress of my panic, was devoted to getting away down the hill and out of the wood as swiftly as my limbs could bear me. For a little while I heard nothing but the hissing snow of my headlong passage and the rustle of the covered undergrowth beneath my feet, and then, from close at hand behind me, once more the wolf howl sounded and I heard the plunging of footsteps other than my own. The strap of my knapsack had shifted, and as my skates swung to and fro on my back, it chafed and pressed on my throat, hindering free passage of air, of which, God knew, my labouring lungs were in dire need. And without pausing, I slipped it free from my neck and held it in my hand from which my ski-stick had been jerked. I seemed to go a little more easily for this adjustment, and now, not so far distant, I could see below me the path from which I had strayed. If only I could reach that, the smoother going would surely enable me to outdistance my pursuer, who even on the rougher ground was but slowly overhauling me, and at the sight of that riband stretching unimpeded downhill, a ray of hope pierced the black panic of my soul. With that came the desire, keen and insistent, to see who or what it was that was on my tracks, and I spared a backwards glance. It was she, the hag who I had seen at her gruesome meal, her long grey hair flew out behind her, her mouth chattered and gibbered, her fingers made grabbing movements as if already they closed on me. But the path was now at hand, and the nearness of it, I suppose, made me incautious. A hump of snow-covered bush lay in my path, and thinking I could jump over it, I tripped and fell, smothering myself in snow. I heard a maniac noise, half scream, half laugh from close behind, and before I could recover myself, the grabbing fingers were at my neck, as if a steel vice had closed there. But my right hand in which I held my knapsack of skates was free, and with a blind backhanded movement I whirled it behind me at the full length of its strap, and I knew that my desperate blow had found its billet somewhere. Even before I could look round I felt the grip on my neck relax, and something subsided into the very bush which had entangled me. I recovered my feet and turned. There she lay, twitching and quivering. The heel of one of my skates, piercing the thin alpaca of the knapsack, had hit her full on the temple, from which the blood was pouring. But a hundred yards away, I could see another figure coming downwards on my tracks, leaping and bounding. At that, panic rose again within me, and I sped off down the white smooth path that led to the lights of the village already beckoning. Never once did I pause in my headlong going. There was no safety until I was back among the haunts of men. I flung myself against the door of the hotel and screamed for admittance, though I had but to turn the handle and enter. And once more, as when Ingram had told his tale, there was the sound of the band and the chatter of voices, and there, too, was he himself, who looked up and then rose swiftly to his feet as I made my clattering entrance. "'I have seen them, too,' I cried. "'Look at my knapsack. Is there not blood on it? It is the blood of one of them, a woman, a hag.' who tore off the leg of a chamois as I looked, and pursued me through the accursed wood. I, whether it was I who spun round, or the room which seemed to spin round me, I knew not, but I heard myself falling, collapsed on the floor, and the next time that I was conscious at all, I was in bed. There was Ingram there, who told me that I was quite safe, and another man, a stranger, who pricked my arm with the nozzle of a syringe, and reassured me. A day or two later, I gave a coherent account of my adventure, and three or four men armed with guns went over my traces. 
They found the bush in which I had stumbled with a pool of blood which had soaked into the snow, and still, following my ski tracks, they came on the body of a chamois from which had been torn one of its hind legs and one eye socket was empty. That is all the corroboration of my story that I can give the reader. And for myself, I imagine that the creature which pursued me was either not killed by my blow or that her fellows removed her body. Anyhow, it is open to the incredulous to prowl about the caves of the young Guerhorn and see if anything occurs that may convince them. That was The Horror Horn by E.F. Benson. Bit of a classic tale, clearly inspired by then-current speculation and reports about the abominable snowman. Of course, those reports were concerned with the Himalayas, but in this story, Benson has transferred the creatures to the Swiss Alps, a place that he knew quite well himself. So, some facts about Edward Frederick Benson. He was an English novelist and also an archaeologist. He was born in Berkshire in 1867. And he's, he's done, he did a lot of different things. He wrote a lot of society satire novels. But today he's mostly remembered for his weird fiction, his spooky and ghost stories. Perhaps one of his most famous stories, uh, well remembered in this vein, is The Bus Conductor. That's You've probably heard some version of this. I talked about it myself at length on Strange Ireland in, um, oh goodness, it was an episode where I ended up talking about, oh, it was also the same episode about Joseph Sheridan Le Fanu, because I was talking about uh, stories that had a sort of a ghostly element of prediction or prophetic dreams. So the story, The Bus Conductor, um, has the famous line, room for one more. You've probably heard some version of this in an urban legend or in, in a ghost story or in one of those old Uh, TV anthology shows about scary stories. Any kind of story where a character has a prophetic dream about a a scary character who says, room for one more, and then there's a tragedy where people die. And the focus of the story is usually that the main character escaped uh, a nasty death because he recognised the scary figure. Um, Edward Frederick Benson is often mentioned in the same breath as other more famous writers such as Lovecraft, or Ambrose Bierce, or Algernon Blackwood. Um, he was writing at, a, at the right time to fit in with some of these guys. It's that period after the era of the classic Victorian ghost story, but also after um, the, 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 the writing of the likes of M.R. James, but before the pulp magazine thing had really kicked in in the 1930s. So he's, you know, com- coming around at the right time as all these guys. He was definitely a big influence on the likes of Lovecraft. And I think that Lovecraft, I could be wrong, I think he mentions him in his his essay, Supernatural Horror and Literature, which is like his, his own personal field guide to the genre, which he wrote, I think, in the late 20s, and which covers, um, kind of hits on just about everybody, as a really serious who's who of, um, you know, that kind of literature at the time. Certainly in this story, there are hints of things that we might now call Lovecraftian. I'll get to that in a moment. A couple of other things about Benson. His father was the Archbishop of Canterbury, so he came from rather well-off stock. And interestingly, he had a very odd family life. He was gay himself, as was apparently his mother and all of his own siblings, to the extent he actually had a sister who became involved 
with the lover of the female lover of his mother. So they had a very complicated um, home life. And tying in with this story, he actually once represented England at figure skating internationally. So when he talks about skiing and skating, he knows what he's talking about. Now, to specify a few more things about this particular story, the horror horn, as I said, he's, he's, he's been reading these articles about the abominable snowman. It's kind of a new idea. It's, it's an idea that's on the way up. Um, it's taking off. It's becoming more famous in the West uh, because of some of those well-reported cases I mentioned before the story. But not only does he change uh, the location of the creatures to fit in with the Alps, but he changes the size of them. He mentions that they're small. I wonder if this is the idea that it might seem more possible for these creatures to exist in somewhere like the Alps, which is in the middle, as, as remote as it is, it's still in the middle of, you know, well-populated Europe, as opposed to, you know, what would have seen been seen by Europeans at the time as the remote, you know, fastnesses of Asia, where it was easier for them to imagine something might remain hidden, something like the Yeti. So he makes them smaller, and um, perhaps, you know, to make them seem more believable, or to make it seem more believable that they would be hiding out in a place like that. Um, I've looked into this quite a bit. Are there any legends um, of, you know, Bigfoot-type creatures that are indigenous to the Alps? There seems not to be. Benson seems to not be operating with any, you know, local legends or legends that are actually associated with Central Europe or with the Alps, as far as I can tell. There are some legendary creatures associated with that area, things like the Tatzelwurm, um, but nothing... I think that fits in with the nothing I think that fits in with the kind of wild man theory I, as far as I know that part of Europe doesn't have anything like that now a lot of the horror in this comes from the emphasis that Benson places on well what does it mean to his his protagonist to come face to face with this kind of proto-human uh, he mentions that it, it is essentially a human you know it is essentially a homo sapiens but just an older version of it so they are so close to us they're practically the same as us, and therein lies the horror. He says it wouldn't be so bad if this was clearly an animal, clearly an ape, but the fact that it's a, a person living or reduced to such a, an animal-like state is what troubles him. There's a huge element of the sort of Lovecraftian fascin um, obsession here with, with ancestry, I think is the word I'm trying to come up with. So, like, Lovecraft was obsessed with, with ancestry, um, a lot of his stories are about characters becoming horrified and, and being driven mad by finding out the revelations of where they actually came from or who their ancestors were. And Benson mentioned several times in this story that, you know, the revelation that humans have crawled up from the depths of evolutionary time and the evolutionary scale as they would have understood it or believed it to be in the 1920s um, is, is more precarious than we would have thought. And he mentions a couple of times the fear that, well, what if we just slipped back down? How easy that would be. And coming face to face with these creatures um, is, is horrifying to his characters because it reminds them uh, they're confronted with the rea reality that maybe we're not so far away from animals as we hoped or as we thought. And, you know, we're, we're not that different. We're not that much better. And maybe it wouldn't take all that much to bring us down to their level. You know, maybe our, our place at the top of the tree is precarious. Um, and, and, and again, stuff that really obsessed Lovecraft um, in years to come. One other element here I think is interesting is um, he mentions that the, the Bigfoot-type creatures are known for stealing women, which is, which is common. I mean, that goes back to the, 
you know, the Indian stealing your women motif of, of Europeans in, in the New World goes back to the 14 and 1500s and was a big part of the Bigfoot legends in North America from early days. But here he's turning it on his head then because he says, well, actually, they steal men as well. And they do the same thing with men. Although this is brushed aside a few times in the story where the character says, oh, I wasn't quite so worried about what this wild woman was going to do to us. It's more uh, the, the, the um, Darwinian sort of implications of it that is weirding him out. But still, not something you hear a whole lot in these stories. You know, any any stories about ape men or relic hominids, it's, it's very sexually charged and there is this underlying element, especially in older stories of... In uh, you know this sexual thing though they're going to come and steal our women which is kind of reminiscent of how Europeans spoke about indigenous cultures all over the world honestly but he, you know Benson takes it in a very strange direction here so plenty of interesting ideas there I'm going to wrap up with that. So you've been listening to Wide Atlantic Weird. My name is Kian. Uh, best way to get in touch if you'd like to is uh, on Twitter. I am at Strange Ireland, named after my previous podcast. Uh, if you want to comment on the show or send in any ideas for shows or indeed tell us about anything unusual that has ever happened to you and you can stomach me being a little bit critical about it, and um, I'm perfectly happy to hear from you. So please do get in touch. Let us know how we're doing. Remember, we are ready to believe you, but the evidence has to be good. <laughs>